Y'all turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. And I want to start this morning by asking you a question, actually two questions. And I actually want a response. So if, if your answer to this is yes, then I want you to raise your hand. So here you go. Raise your hand if you are a Christian. In other words, if you have been born again, you know you're forgiven, you know you're heaven bound, you belong to Jesus, you're bought by his blood, and you know you're his. Raise your hand. Okay, very good. Okay, now, lower your hand. Now, if you didn't raise your hand, my purpose is not to make you feel awkward like poor James in the video there, but we want you to know we're glad you're here. We want you to know this is a safe place for you to explore who Jesus is um, or just to check out how weird Christians are or whatever the case may be. You can be here as often as you want. We hope you come back and we hope you ask any questions you might have. I'm not trying to make you feel conspicuous in asking Christians to raise their hands. My purpose is to ask this next question. And the next question is, raise your hand if you are called to full-time, full-time ministry and evangelism. Called to full-time ministry. How many? Okay. All right. You can lower your hand. Now, I love you. I disagree with most of you. Okay? And let me tell you why. Last week, while I was on the beaches of South Padre Island, uh, Alan did a great job of explaining from Romans 10 that if you are saved, you're also sent. If you are a Christian, you're called. And he walked through all the sermons we've preached this year and and how all the series tie into a common theme, which is finding your purpose in God's kingdom. As a ministry staff, our focus has been helping equip you and realize, uh, equip you for a specific calling that God has placed on your life. The truth is, if you're a believer in Christ, your full-time occupation is ministry. Now, you may not get paid to do ministry like a few of us do, You may be more like the Apostle Paul who had to do a secular job to pay the bills so he could afford to serve God. That's probably most of you, but all of you are called to ministry. All of you are called to evangelism. Every single one of you who call yourselves believers in Christ. And that's what we've been doing this year in all these sermon series, also through the missional pathway. This is a journey we've been on since the beginning of the year. Some of you remember in the spring, we had a couple of events, um, Awaken and Activate, where we help you discover individually, what is my calling? What it, how has God equipped me to serve Him in the community around me? And then in Activate, what kinds of things should I, should I be doing to put my calling into practice? That process is still going on. Uh, you'll see in your worship guide, in your At First Guide, there's an event coming up October the 6th called Assess. And then there's another one, November the 3rd, called Advance. That's not in your bulletin, but we'll be talking about it. Those are the second half of the missional pathway where we'll gather together as an entire church body. And we won't be focusing on our individual calling so much as what should we as a church do? How can we as a church increase our outreach to the whole community? And at the end of that second event in November, we're going to come back with, we're going to end up with a a, a list of initiatives that our church has agreed together that we want to do to reach our community for Christ. So whether you went to those first two events or not, we want you to come October 6th and November 3rd. Put that on your calendar. So your job is ministry. And that's why I'm starting this series today called Jesus and Unbelievers. Every one of us has people around us that need to know Christ. 
And it's our job to represent Christ before them. But that's a hard thing to do. When I just said your full-time calling is ministry, I bet most of you thought, good grief, I don't feel equipped for that. I'm doing good just to show up at church and try not to embarrass myself the rest of the week. What we're looking at in this series is stories of Jesus interacting with unbelievers and what can we learn from him? Obviously, you're not Jesus and neither am I, but we can learn from him how those conversations can go, how those interactions should be, what those relationships should look like. And so over the coming weeks, we'll look at how Jesus responded to people who were very proud and people who were full of shame, people who were, who were highly religious and people who were outcasts, people who were seekers and people who were sinners and everything in between. And hopefully as we do that, you're going to recognize some of the relationships in your life and how you can, how you can conduct those in, in a way that glorifies Him. Now, when I first moved back to the Houston area, I had gone to University of Houston straight out of high school and went to college there, met my wife there on the campus there at the Baptist Student Union. Um, just between us, she was dating somebody else when we first met. I had to kind of wait that out, and I did, and and so we got married, and we went off to seminary, et cetera, et cetera. So in 2001, when we moved back to the Houston area, one of the things that I was determined to do was I wanted to support college ministry in that city. Since it had meant so much to me, I met my wife there, I grew in Christ there, I wanted to support the men and women who did ministry on college campuses. So for 10 years, I was part of a ministry team, and what we would do is we would gather every once in a while with all the men and women who did college ministry through the Baptist denomination, and we would pray for them, we would encourage them, we would hear their stories, and we would help raise funds for them because that's a very underfunded ministry area. So one year, we had a brand new uh, campus minister on, on the campus at Rice University. His name was Andy Dennis. I think he's still there. And Andy's first year, he was talking to us about an event on the campus at Rice called Night of Decadence. Nod is what they call it, Night of Decadence. And it's about as bad as it sounds. And you might think, wait a second, Rice, these are a bunch of nerds. How much trouble could they get into? But I'll tell you, if you take 18 to 23-year-old kids and you put enough alcohol in them and all the administrators turn the other way, and kids are running around campus in their underwear, bad stuff happens, I don't care what their SAT scores are, okay? And Andy was talking about the awful things that happened on this night, the bad decisions, the consequences, and he said, you know, me and my leadership team, we've been talking about what should we as a ministry do on night of decadence? He said a lot of the other ministries on campus, their response is, well, we just need to set up an alternative So our students don't get involved in that bad stuff. We need to have an alternative activity over here. So for instance, there was a a ladies Bible study and their idea was, let's all put on comfy PJs and gather in somebody's dorm and watch Disney princess movies, okay? So that's one idea. And then there's another campus ministry, and they were, they were a little more male-centric in their thinking. They, they said, let's, let's borrow a church gym and let's go play dodgeball during Night of Decadence. So we're out, you know, killing each other with dodgeballs while people are doing bad things over here. And he said, okay, so, so their idea was basically withdraw, do something alternative. He said, the more I thought about it and the more we prayed about it, the more we realized that if Jesus were here in the flesh on a night when 18 to 23-year-olds were making terrible decisions that would ruin the rest of their lives or or, or negatively impact the rest of their lives, he said, if that was going on and Jesus were here in the flesh, I don't think he'd be watching Disney movies. And I don't think he'd be playing dodgeball. And then he paused and he said, but he'd be really good at dodgeball if he wanted to, right? 
Can you imagine playing dodgeball with Jesus? And you're thinking, okay, the kid with the long hair and the flip-flops, I'm getting him next. And you throw it, and then he just disappears, right? And then he's right next to you, boo, and he just rains dodgeballs from the ceiling. I don't know. That's just the way I think. But Andy had a great point. Jesus, if he were here in the flesh, he wouldn't be doing alternative activities. He wouldn't be finding parallel things that we could do so we could remain unstained from the world. He would say, hey, why aren't we out there among those who are making bad decisions? Why aren't we out there among those who don't even know that there's a different way to live, and yet there it is, this, this God who made them, who loves them, who, who paid the ultimate price to redeem them, and they don't even know that God yet. I think that's what Jesus would be about. And that's what we are called to be about. And, and he talks about it here in Matthew 9. I, I want us to look at this passage, very brief passage. And keep in mind, Jesus was a man who was constantly on the move from the time he started his ministry to the time approximately three years later when he died on the cross. He was constantly on, on, on the move, constantly in demand. This was a man who was probably tired all the time. He never got rest. And yet, here's what it says. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. You know what that word good news is in Greek? It's gospel, euangelion. Proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, just stop there for a moment. If you were a person whose job it was, whose calling it was to respond to people, and you were tired because it never stopped. There was always somebody with a demon-possessed child. There was always somebody who had a, an aching back that needed to be fixed. There was always somebody who was blind or deaf or crippled. There was always somebody who had someone dead they wanted raised. It never, never, never stopped. And, and you saw a whole bunch of crowd coming toward you, a big crowd of people. Your first thought would probably be, not again. Someone please give me a break. I need a day off. What does it say here? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So again, as we're going to begin this, this worship, uh, this, this sermon series, it's, it's going to be individual encounters between Jesus and unbelieving people, and, and they're going to be different stories. But today, I wanted to set that up by just talking about how if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be the representatives of Christ, we need to be. If we're going to be in the world where people are making bad decisions, helping them make the right choices, we have to change the way we look at people outside the faith. We need to learn to look at people like Jesus does. We need to be able to look at people and say, this is just someone who needs a shepherd. And I'm not the shepherd, but I know him, and I can introduce them to him. And that's a fundamental change in the way we think. Most of us, if we're honest, we've got enough bandwidth to feel that way about maybe a handful of people, our family, maybe a couple of close friends. Jesus is calling us to feel that way about a wide variety of folks, some of whom don't even like us. How do we get there? Well, there's three things I want to talk to you about, and then I'm done. First of all, we have to know them. We have to choose to make them part of our lives. And the truth is, the longer we are believers in Christ, the fewer non-Christians we tend to know. 
if you were saved, especially if you were saved as an adult, you probably had lots of non-Christian acquaintances when you first came into the family of God, but the longer you spent in church, the more your activities started to revolve around church itself. And that's not a bad thing. We want you to be involved in worship every Sunday. We want you to be involved in a small group, a life group, Bible study. We want you to be involved in ministry of some kind. Those, things, those three things are fundamental to you growing in Christ. But it's ironic that the more we grow, the more mature we become in Christ, the less contact we have with unbelievers. And for some of us, for some of us, we know almost no unbelievers. I have a hard time myself because where I work, everybody says they're saved. Think about that for a minute. Where I work, everybody says they're a Christian. Who am I supposed to witness to? You have to take intentional steps. Some of us, some of us in this room would have to say, I don't, I don't really know any unbelievers, so join a gym and actually go, right? If you go to the ballpark or if you go to the theater, if you have season tickets to the Crichton or the Owen or wherever, get to know the people around you who sit in the seats near you. Find out their names. Find out something about them that you can pray for, that you can pray about. Get involved in your kid's school. Become the room mom or join the PTA or volunteer or, or just be a dad roaming around the campus and helping with security. Find ways to get to know your kid's school and the other parents there. Or maybe just walk across the street with a plate of brownies and meet a neighbor who you don't really know. But you have to take the initiative. Some of you would say, I know unbelievers. But my question is, do you really know them? If you're working out in the world right now, if you're, if you're working outside of a church or a Christian organization, you've probably got non-Christian coworkers. But have you invested in their lives? You know, one way to really deepen your relationship with people and, and turn your relationship with them into something much more fruitful is to just ask the question, how can I pray for you? You can do that. You don't have to be a minister to just say, hey, what's going on in your life that I can pray about? And I've done that many, many times. I've rarely had anyone say no. Often their, their response is, well, to tell you the truth, my marriage isn't going so well. To tell you the truth, my son hasn't talked to me in, in a couple of years. My back is killing me, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep on working if, if I don't get some answers to this problem in my spine. I, I'm worried that this company is going to lay me off, and if they do, what am I going to do? And you pray for that person. In fact, if, if they're comfortable enough, pray with them right then and there. That can change your relationship with that person right then and there. And, and you can just flow from that point forward. You know, last spring... Um, I, I need to start over. I mentioned campus ministry earlier, and this church sponsors a campus ministry at Lone Star Montgomery, uh, Montgomery County, Lone Star College. Um, there's a Baptist student ministry on that campus. Uh, the leader is Tamara Brooks. I've known her for many years. She used to be on campus at U of H, my alma mater. Um, so every spring or, or once a semester, she invites me and Calvin Pearson, who's at Crossroads Church, to what, he, what she calls Ask the Preacher Day. So the students come, they get free pizza, they get to ask Calvin and me any question they might have, 
And usually it's mostly Christian kids and they're asking questions about the Bible or maybe it's a a kid from a different denomination who wants to know why Baptists are this way instead of that way. And and those are fine. Those are always interesting. But last time we had Ask the Preacher Day on Lone Star Campus, there was a girl there named Molly. And Molly started asking questions. And and she would ask a question. I would try to give an explanation. And she would ask a follow-up question because something I said didn't make sense. So we kept going deeper and deeper and becoming more and more basic until finally I'm talking about sin. And she says, well, what is sin? And that is the moment that I realized Molly didn't know anything about Christianity at all. And I was like, "This this is the best day of my life. A person just asked me to explain the basics of the gospel in a room full of college students. They literally said, tell me what sin is. And there, I, from there, I got to tell her, okay, here's what sin looks like, here's what it is, and here's the answer to it, and here's why Jesus came, here's what he did, here's how you can know him. And after that was over, Tamara walked up to Molly and got to know her and made sure she had a Bible, and, and they've been meeting ever since. And, and you, know, you pray for her that she'll come to Christ. But my point is, there are Mollies all over our community. You may think, oh, we're in the Bible Belt. There are tons of people who have no idea what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And the only way they're going to hear is if somebody like you becomes their friend and actually goes beyond, hey, how you doing? But actually invests in their lives. We have to know them. So assignment number one for each of us this week is get to know more people who aren't Christians. Deepen your relationships with people who aren't believers. And in fact, increase the size of your sphere of influence. Make sure there are some people in there who still need to know Christ. How can they know unless they hear? And how can they hear unless someone speaks to them? That's what Alan preached on last week. Second thing, we have to love them. If we want to change the way we feel about people, if we want to start seeing people through Jesus' eyes, we have to be intentional about loving other people. And let's be honest, can can we just say the ugly truth? When most of us as Christians talk about people who aren't Christians, we don't talk very nicely about them. I mean, listen to us when we're talking about someone who's of another faith. How do we talk about Muslims? How do we talk about Buddhists? How do we talk about Hindus? How do we talk about Jews? How do we talk about atheists? How do we talk about people who have very different views than us on social issues, issues of sexuality, issues of of culture? How do we talk about people who vote differently than us? When we talk about those people, you can hear the disdain in our voices. We talk about them as if they're our enemy, as if they're a foe to be defeated. And what's worse, you can tell we think we're holy because we feel that way, because we've separated ourselves from the dirtiness and the uncleanness of this world. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a story in this very same chapter. In Matthew 9, Matthew himself tells the story of the day Jesus met him. Matthew was a a tax collector. He was basically gathering tolls on a certain highway. And, and, you know, none of us like taxes today. But in that day, in Jewish culture in the first century, the tax collector was the most despised person in his community because he was literally a collaborator with the enemy. And so people who were tax collectors like Matthew were outside of respectable society and certainly outside of religious society. And Jesus meets this man and it changes his life. Just meeting 
Jesus changes his life. And Matthew says, I want all my friends to meet you, Jesus, so I'm going to have a party. Will you come? Jesus says, absolutely. Well, guess who's at the party? All the other tax collectors. And guess who else is at the party? The only other people who will have anything to do with tax collectors, which means prostitutes and other sinners. And Jesus is there in the midst of these people, eating together, talking, laughing, clasping hands. The religious elites are watching this. And they say, how can this man who claims to be from God, how can he spend time around such awful people? Is he soft on sin or what? Shouldn't he condemn them for the awful people they are? Shouldn't he separate himself as far as possible? And Jesus' response is very telling. He said, it's not, it's not the well people who need a doctor, it's the sick. I didn't come to save people who are already righteous. I came to save people who were sinners. Mark Galley's Christian author, he wrote the following about that story. And I want you to read this quote. I think it's so profound. He says, the difference between Jesus' holiness ethic and that of the Pharisees is this. The Pharisees refused to touch any unclean thing. Jesus aims to make the unclean holy. Ask yourself the question, when it comes to people who are outside the faith, when it comes to people who, whose lifestyle you disagree with, which of those two attitudes are you more like? Now, there's a third option, and this is the way a lot of Christians are today, and that's a live and let live. Hey, I'm, I'm not judging them. I'm not trying to change them. That's their business. That's their thing. I'm just doing my thing. Well, that's not a viable option either. Jesus didn't separate himself from unbelievers. He didn't ignore unbelievers. He sought to make them holy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean bring them to church and, and put them in good clothes. It means bring them to the God who can redeem their souls. It means show them there's a different way, and that way is through the God who made you. So our second assignment this week, if we want to love them, we need to start by praying for them. I hope that every day you spend time praying for your non-Christian friends. Every day. Put it on your prayer list. Make it a reminder on your iPhone. Have a list of specific people you're praying for. And you may say, well, I don't know if this person is a Christian or not. It sure won't hurt for, for you to pray for them. God's not going to be upset if you're praying for somebody and you get to heaven and find out they were saved all along. My point is, pray for them. And when I say pray for them, I mean more than just pray that they become Christians. I hope you do pray for that. Yeah, absolutely. If you know someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't follow Christ, pray that God would make himself known to them. Pray that God would create in them a hunger for the knowledge of him. That Pray that God would send somebody into their life who will be a persuasive witness, an influence on them. But beyond that, pray for the things that are important to them. Remember what I, when I talked about earlier, asking someone, how can I pray for you? Get to know the non-Christian people in your life and what they're struggling with and pray about those things. When Jesus was here in the flesh, he didn't just walk around preaching the gospel. He healed people. Jesus cared about their physical needs. He cared about their emotional needs. And he still does. When you start caring about that unbeliever's marriage, about his relationship with his kids, about her job, about her health, when you start bearing their burdens alongside them, when they look around and realize, you know, I feel alone in this world in all my struggles, but that Christian friend of mine seems to care almost as much as I do. 
that's going to make a powerful difference. And when you start caring about the things that are important to them, that's when you start loving them. And that's when you start seeing them through God's eyes. We have to know them. We have to take the initiative to make them part of our lives. And we have to go beyond that to actually love them. Love is a verb that leads to emotion. And then third, we have to become responsible for them. There is still in our culture, in our very increasingly secularizing culture where fewer and fewer people are willing to identify themselves as Christians, where fewer and fewer people go to church on Sundays, there's still a hunger for spiritual things. There was a book written about 10 years ago that that made a profound difference in my life when I read it called, They Like Jesus, But They Don't Like the Church. Essentially talking about all these people who say, man, I want nothing to do with Christianity, but you bring up the person of Jesus and their ears perk up. Their ears perk up. They're interested in Him. We're responsible for those people. God has called us to reach them. I can remember uh, my daughter is going to be 21 in a month. And I can remember when she was born, how I felt. Now, the day that she was born, I was overjoyed. I can remember crying tears of joy. First time in my life that it ever happened. I was a typical young American male. I had no tear ducts. But that child emerged and screamed her lungs out. And her grandparents down the, you know, down the hallway of the hospital heard her 50 yards away. We knew she was healthy and alive. And I just wept. And I was so excited and so grateful to God. And then almost as soon as the tears dried, this different emotion came over me. This emotion that said, oh, I'm responsible for this this, this person, she's counting on me. And it really hit home a couple of days later when we came home from the hospital and I saw my mother-in-law who had come in for the birth, right? I saw her packing her bags and I'm like, where, where are you going? And she said, well, I'm going home. Y'all, y'all it's time for you to take over. And I thought she was going to be there for at least the first week. And I said, but you can't. You can't leave. Don't, don't you want to stay? Ladies, in, in, the, in the realm of human history, I wonder how many times a man has told his mother-in-law, please stay longer. <laughs> and that was one of those moments because I was like, we don't know what we're doing. I mean, she's better off than me, but we're neither one of us are ready for this. And, and this is true. This is not me trying to be funny. I literally had this thought. I thought, okay, God, I, I've known total morons who have managed to raise a child from birth to adulthood without killing them or losing them or whatever. So I think I'm at least as smart as them. So I can probably do this. I just don't feel ready. It's a tremendous weight of responsibility. Now look again at what Jesus says in verse 35. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus looked at this crowd of people, saw they were lost. Jesus knew, I'm not going to return again for thousands of years. There's going to be millions and millions and millions more of people just like this. We need workers in that harvest field. We need people to take responsibility for those people like I am now. And you know who he's talking about there? He's talking about you and me. Feeling that weight of responsibility, saying, my neighbor is for me. My coworker belongs to me. I am, I am choosing to be responsible for that person. I can't save their soul. I can't force them to come to church. Even if I could, I shouldn't. 
But I need, to, I need to know that someday I'm going to stand before my God and thank God for His grace. When I stand before Him, I won't have to earn my way into heaven. He's already done that for me through the cross. But on that day, I don't want to stand before God and say, okay, Lord, I just kept my head down and did my thing and went to church on Sundays and, and let everybody else take care of themselves. I want to be able to stand before Him and say, Lord, I did my best. You brought... You brought people into my life, and, and I, used, I, I saw every single one of them as a gift, a responsibility, as someone you brought to me to influence toward you. And, and I, I, I didn't bring them all to you, but I did my best. I prayed for them. I, I, I focused on, on my relationship with them. See, here's, here's assignment number three this week. Ask yourself the question, what impression of Jesus do my non-Christian friends get from me? People in my life, all of them, acquaintances, friends, my kid's teacher, his, his friend's parents, everybody I know, the lady who cuts my hair, the, the guy who waits on, the table, waits on tables at my favorite restaurant, everybody I know who's not a believer, if I'm the only Christian they know, what do they think about Christ because of me? That's, that's the kind of responsibility I want us to take. That's the kind of responsibility Jesus is calling us to take. Because here's the exciting thing. Jesus didn't have to take responsibility for us. You know how easy it is for you and me to kind of put our heads down and live in a tunnel and a little Christian bubble and never interact with our non-Christian neighbors? It would have been so much easier for Jesus to never interact with us. He wasn't on a plane with us. He was in heaven. He was on a spiritual plane. He didn't rub shoulders with us. Our sin didn't impact him in any physical way. And yet, he chose to take on human flesh and live in a world where he could be insulted, where he could be inconvenienced, where he could be judged and, and pushed and prodded and assaulted. He came into this world on purpose. And then on that day when he was nailed to that cross, it wasn't because the bad guys finally caught up to him. It wasn't because a, an innocent man was unjustly condemned. Yeah, that happened, but that's not the real narrative. What actually happened that day is Jesus. Jesus said, it's my time. Nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely of my own accord. He said, now's my time. I am giving it up for you. That's the ultimate taking responsibility. He said, I am taking responsibility for the sin you committed. He owed us nothing and he gave us everything. And what if, what if 5% of that mentality of caring about others and taking responsibility for their lives, what if 5% of that could incarnate itself in me and in you? What if a room like this with several hundred people, every single one of us from this day forward walked out and said, every person in my life is my responsibility. And above all else, I'm going to do what I can to influence them toward God. What do you think the impact would be on this community? What do you think the impact would be on this church? God literally only knows. But I'd sure like to find out.